Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for the Irish Study Series, my guest is uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Limerick, Kira Bernack. Kira has recently published a book with uh, Oxford University Press in 2022, Ordinary Lives, Death and Social Class, Dublin City Coroner's Court, 1876-1902. This volume focuses on the evolution of Dublin City's Coroner's Court and on Dr. Lewis Bryan's first two years in office. Wrapping itself around the 1901 census, the study uses gender, power and blame as analytical frameworks to examine what inquests can tell us about the impact of urban living from life cycle and class perspectives. Connors inquests are a combination of eyewitness testimony, expert medical, legal language, detailed minutiae of people, places and occupational identities pinned to a moment in time. The subjects of Dr. Bryan's uh, court were among the poorest in Ireland. And apart from common medical problems inherent to lower socioeconomic groups, this book covers preventable deaths from workplace, accident, neglect, domestic abuse, and homicide. This is a book about death that in the end tells us about daily life in Dublin at the beginning of the 20th century. So before we delve uh, into all of this, the first thing I want to do is uh, to welcome our guest, Kira. Welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. It's lovely to be with you and to have a chat with you again, my fond colleague. Uh, Let me start with a very basic question. Can you tell us something about your background and more importantly about the origins of the book? Well, I I began working on coroner's records in Ireland uh, back in 2011 when I started looking at unknown and unnamed infant dead. And these are children that are listed in civil registration of of death records in Ireland. And to explain the unknown, as in parentage unknown, uh, body is found and uh, handed over to the police and invariably it ends up being subject of a coronial court inquiry. Um, When it's an unnamed infant, what it means is that the mother is apprehended at some point or another. So it's a child that hasn't been baptised or named in any way. And um, in order to explain that infant mortality, what I started to do was look at coronial court inquests. And I conducted this work with Professor Eunan O'Halpin at Trinity College Dublin, and we published a few articles about it. And it really piqued my interest about, and at that point we were looking nationally, we were looking at about 900 unknown and unnamed infant dead over a kind of a 16-year period. And I started looking at the survival of coronial court records in Ireland. And as you are aware, Roberto, we had a devastating fire in the four courts uh, in 1922, which destroyed an awful lot of our court records. And um, I and again, um, the, the data set I was looking at with uh, with Unan um, was national. And what I discovered when I was looking at those um, records was that, first of all, the records were very patchy and we don't have full coverage for the entire country. 
And um, and what I also found was that the Dublin records had a fairly decent survival. And it probably has something to do with the fact that there was a longstanding coroner in Dr. Louis Aloysius Byrne, who was there from 1900 up until 1932. And that may have something to do with the survival, the better survival of the Dublin records. Uh, but again, even that data set is actually quite uh, patchy. Um, the full inquisitions are, are not extant. The registers are, the morgue registers are, the coroner's registers are, but um, as historians of Ireland, we, we, we deal with Apache data um, all the time in Apache archive. So um, it, it piqued my interest because um, these, these, these uh, inquest returns piqued my inquest because what I found in them was an explanation for the social circumstances surrounding uh, these cases that were suspected cases of infanticide. But of course, what the inquisitions re- reveal is that many of those uh, early infant deaths, neonatal and infant deaths up to 12 months, were as a result of uh, dire social circumstances and sometimes women being presented with the most awful of decisions that a woman has to make um, in in situations of dire poverty and they're, they're real heartbreaking cases. And and then I started looking further at the coronial court records because they're just, a, they're an incredible data set, um, particularly for, if you're interested in the history of poverty. So this is a book about death, to be honest. And I think the readers will find the book really focusing on the question of death. And yet it is actually a book about everyday life because what you do in the book is to tell the story of Dublin in a specific period of time through basically the coroner's records and, you know, through people that have died. Now, can you tell us how did you develop this idea? Because I found it extremely interesting that, you know, you decided to look at this uh, uh, coroner's record, which at least, uh, uh, you know, in my experience, is not exactly the first source uh, of historical information that you want to look at. Again, Roberto, that's a very um, astute um, observation on your part. Uh, But when you're looking at poor Irish people in particular, uh, they don't leave uh, memoirs, they don't leave uh, diaries, and they leave a very faint impression on the historical record. So we have to find their voices elsewhere. And what I found, uh, particularly I've been working on the history of death and poverty for a few decades at this stage, and... um, what I found in records of death is that it tells you a lot more about life, um, surviving relatives, even in um, obituaries or in death notices. It's about the living as opposed to the dead. My my son, the engineer, uh, that that old that old joke of the woman running running up and down the beach saying, "Help, help, help! My my son, the engineer, is drowning," and no mention of the son's name. So it's it's a way of um, in these records of death. It's way it's a way of family members, I suppose, eking out levels of respectability and and in some respects kind of salvaging whatever good name the dead person had. And particularly if it was a relative, I mean, we find, like I found in several of the records um, of, you know, say child deaths, uh, that, you know, there is respectability indicators peppered throughout and invariably by the Dublin Metropolitan Police because these police officers, um, these constables, were just a small step above the subjects of the coronial court inquiries. And I should probably clarify that um, coroner's records 
really are uh, the Dublin City Coroner's records, I should say, are the records of the deaths of the poor and the destitute of Dublin City. So if you're ending up as a subject of a coronial court inquiry, either you have been uh, the victim of um, a violent attack or, or assault of some kind or another, but that's only a small proportion of the, 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 the cases coming before the coroner. By and large, they're mundane cases of somebody dying at home because they've neglected their health or neglected the health of a child or were perhaps unaware that the child was that sick or perhaps holding off before going to seek medical assistance because they couldn't afford it or it wasn't accessible to them or or perhaps they they had a plurality in terms of how they engaged with medical health care and maybe looked to traditional um, um, remedies as opposed to going towards what we might now term modern health care or evidence-based health care. So um, anyway, what I what I found in, in looking at these records... Um, was that very definitely coming back to your point is that they tell us an awful lot about about life uh, about living circumstances about you know the rooms people died in about the amount of food they consumed that day or whether or not they had eaten anything that day or whether or not somebody had given them food or a neighbor said oh there was no food in the house and I gave them food or I gave him a cup of tea because he was cold and destitute and um, you know, it, it it really is an incredibly rich source, particularly for a historian like me, because I'm always looking for um, records pertaining to ordinary people and ordinary lives. So I went off on a rant there. My apologies, Roberto. <laughs> no, it was great. And actually, this, you know, ties perfectly with my next question, which is some sort of idea of setting the context. So we talked about... Uh, you know, the city of Dublin and the coroners that are basically the main characters of your book. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, Dublin at the beginning of the 20th century and also about uh, the coroner, who is the central figure of of the book, uh, Dr. Louise Aloysius Byrne. Okay, well, I'll start off with Dr. Louis A. Byrne. He really is a a central character um, in this this story. And he uh, starts out himself as a clerk in a distillery in Dublin. And then he moves into a job in the accountancy department in the local authority, um, in the municipal authority and in Dublin Corporation. And uh, he goes to night school and uh, earns his licentiate uh, from the Royal College of Physicians, and 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 he's gets a job then um, uh, in the in Jervis Street Hospital, and then he becomes um, a surgeon, a very well known surgeon in the city, and um, I suppose he's always looked down upon because he doesn't go to the, through the what we might consider a more um, traditional route. Um, he's even in his obituary, a, a comment is made about how he had gone to, you know, uh, gone to one of the sham certificate schools. Uh, in fact, the Ledrick school that he had gone to um, was under review for, um, you know, giving certificates to people who, who hadn't attended school at all. And um, and actually, Laura Kelly writes about this, and um, and he is looked down upon. Uh, as against people who might have gone abroad or who might have gone to Trinity College to 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 study, uh, and again back then, of course, medicine was a different route. Everybody, uh, people would have gone and done a, a liberal arts degree initially or a BA um, in the classics, and then gone on to um, either go through um, uh, you know uh, the apprenticeship route or whatever else. 
and gone through their medical uh, training and then gone on to sit their their exams. Um, but uh, Louis Byrne um, is connected, I suppose, in many respects to the great and good of Dublin City because he marries um, the he marries into a wealthy family. Um, and his father-in-law is a is a well-known medic in the city and a, a philanthropist, and um, and I suppose his his own levels of respectability is fairly vicariously achieved. But throughout his thirty-two-year career as coroner to the city of Dublin, and he's about forty years a, a surgeon in the city, he earns a very good reputation, and he seems to be a bit of a golden boy in terms of the shift, of course, that happens during the revolutionary period. And he presides over some very controversial killings during. Um, he's not involved in any of the investigations of nineteen sixteen of the uh, Easter Rebellion, but um, the following year. Um, some Republicans go on hunger strike, and in 1917, he um, he's basically called in to um, uh, carry out an inquisition into the death of uh, Thomas Ashe, who was a Republican leader who died as a result of a of a botched force feeding exercise. And of course, the Republicans, Irish Republicans, use it as propaganda, and uh, they publish the inquest, and it's made available. Um, across the Anglophone world, much the chagrin of the British Crown forces. And um, and of course, it has nothing to do with uh, uh, Louis Byrne himself. But when other medics are being attacked for their role in force-feeding Republicans, he is always, he's left alone. Um, no matter what way the, the, the waves of Republicanism and nationalism change in the city, he seems to be allowed to to, to um, his own devices because he's seen as apolitical in many respects. He's, a, he's Roman Catholic, so he's part of that, you know, rising Roman Catholic uh, middle-class elite in Dublin City, um, but he himself comes from humble origins, and I don't think he ever forgets that. And he's, he's court, as, as with any other um, uh, coroner, um, and I should clarify here as well that a coroner's court is a, a court of record, it's not an adversarial court. It is one that has uh, kind of limited powers. It's not a lower court in the judicial system. It's not at all. However, the evidence that's collected at the coroner's court can be used in adversarial courts thereafter, in the criminal courts, if there is a situation whereby um, there's suspicion associated with somebody who is involved in a court case, or sorry, in, involved in a, in a, a, a coroner's case. So, I think other scholars um, like Elizabeth T. Hearn have observed that um, really the coroner sets, or any judge for that matter, in, in the criminal courts, sets the tenor, as in T-E-N-O-R, of the type of court that they preside over and the, the levels of um, fairness or, or perceptions of justice that comes from these courts it really comes back to the the persona of the person who's presiding over it and so he's very important to all of this and I think because he was also a surgeon at Jervis Street Hospital he saw an awful lot of very poor people coming into the hospital as, as well and would have been very it was located in the city centre and he would have been very much attuned to the social circumstances of the subjects of the court. So I think he was quite sympathetic to the plight of the the urban poor in ways that that others may not necessarily have been, you know. 
So um, he's very important to the story. And in terms of Dublin City itself, you asked about the, the social circumstances in Dublin. It's a very poor city, actually. Um, like many other European and American cities, you have a situation whereby um, the the elite of the city uh, has the flight to the suburbs uh, that occurs in the late 19th century. And as an urban historian yourself, um, Roberta, you'll be well familiar with this kind of trend of the, the, the denigration of townhouses uh, and their transformation into tenements. And that's largely complete by 1900. And, and in Dublin city centre, um, you have quite a large population living in a very small space. Dublin city centre is actually quite small and you have like a quarter of a million people living there. And um, needless to add, the social conditions are dire. Uh, It doesn't have the same level of industrialisation as Belfast and the economy itself is pejoratively described as based on biscuits and beer. And um, so very few families fit that breadwinner model so the idea of having your idle wife stay at home minding children was something that very few families had. Not even the Guinness workers would have had that level of security. And indeed, there are some um, studies. Uh, Dr. John Lumsden um, was the uh, company doctor at Guinness's, and he conducted a study in 1903, 1904, in that zeitgeist of like around about a pound a week. And um, he discovered there were quite a lot of wives uh, of various different, um, you know, levels in the company. Um, not obviously the master brewers; they would have been on bigger money. But um, say the lower, lower down the pecking order, wives would have kept lodgers to have other forms of cash income coming into households. So if that's happening with Guinness workers, um, then for people who worked in in other uh, sectors, um, you know, the the the, the economic. Uh, or the financial security of households was always very, very precarious in Dublin at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, one, one more point I'd like to make is that I think people think of Joycey and Dublin um, when you look at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, you're, everybody's minded of, you know, um, Buck Mulligan and Stephen Dedalus and all of that. But this is O'Casey's Dublin. This is the Dublin of the tenements. This is a, this is a, the story of the poorest of the poor in Dublin city. I found it, uh, you know, while reading your book, really the parallel like between Jerusalem, which is the object of my work, and Dublin, very similar. You have these elites leaving the old city. And and at the same time, you have, you know, the idea Europeans look at the old city like through a religious uh, set of lenses. And so they... They built an idea, but it's not it's not the real the real city. And the same is like through literature, you look at Dublin and it looks very different from what actually it was. Um, I want to ask you something about methodology because I found something very uh, interesting in your book. Uh, your book is about power, gender and class. Uh, and it is a work of microhistory, uh, something that I appreciate because I'm a microhistorian. I really love uh, reading microhistories. Uh, but it's also, obviously, as we already mentioned, is a book on um, basically of urban history. Now, while I would love to address all of these approaches, but I, I'm very curious about uh, a specific concept that you used, and this is the Foucauldian concept of biopower, which, if I remember well, and I think you mentioned also in the book, you really never uh, fully developed. It's something that uh, it comes up with, is developing, but only up to a point, and it's other scholars that picked up uh, this idea of biopower. So I was wondering, how does biopower work in the context of your book? 
Well, uh, I, I found myself, because of the nature of the records I was looking at, that uh, I found myself having to take a multi-methods approach because urban history alone couldn't carry it for me. Um, and uh, micro history alone can't carry it because it's neither singular. I wasn't focusing just on um, uh, on uh, Louis Byrne because he doesn't leave any papers himself. So I couldn't use him as the object, you know, through like and, and do a proper micro history, as you'd say. Um, I, I, and and I, I also found because the records themselves were patchy that I couldn't actually use the body of records uh, in the way I wanted to, because I would have been wonderful to have had 32 records to, to, to use. So I found myself having to pull from a couple of different um, uh, methodological bases. And why I found biopower particularly useful is that, and as you mentioned, Roberto, it's um, something that he mentions at his lectures at the Collège de France. He doesn't develop it. In fact, it's other scholars that develop it into the field that we know today in terms of biopower and governmentality. But one of the things he does do is he defines what he means by biopouvoir, and he says that it's an explosion of numerous and diverse techniques for achieving the subjugation of bodies and the control of populations. And I found that I could use that to classify the kinds of data I was working with. And I I found it useful to mobilize um, Aloysius Byrne as uh, as an agent of biopower because in 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 a civil registration of death in Ireland you have three people you have the deceased you have the informant and you have the registrar and under the legislation um, the informant in coroner's cases is the coroner or the the office of the coroner so you'll find that in like and I tried to interoperate um the the data from um the coronial court inquiries and the civil registration of deaths and it was um and it really came down to the source material itself uh, Roberta Roberto as to how I could reclassify these data as um as elements of biopower, you know, as instruments of biopower, because they really are. I mean, for a lot of the cases I was looking at, the records of the 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 the, the life event, which was the death, was the only evidence of that person ever having lived, because um, civil registration of births, deaths, and marriages comes into play for Irish uh, Roman Catholics in um, 1864. But even in 1900, like one of the first cases um, of uh, Louis Burns' uh, tenure is um, of, a, of a 26-year-old man um, whose birth isn't registered. It should have been registered. But of course, for Roman Catholic sensibilities, having a baptism was more important than engaging with the civil registration uh, side of things. So there's a dichotomy going on in... Um, I, what we might term the the traditional Irish mindset of not recognizing civil instruments and recognizing the instruments of the Roman Catholic Church, <laughs> which might sound familiar to you as well, Roberto. <laughs> Growing up in Italy, I learned a lot about the Catholic Church. I think you English. might have. <laughs> uh, I want to I start talking about the chapters, but... Um, you know, I normally take, uh, uh, you know, the authors that I interview through the various chapters uh, of their work. But actually, with you, I want to do something different because I feel uh, listeners would be better served if we actually talk about uh, uh, some of the major themes that you developed throughout the uh, four chapters of the book. 
And uh, I really want to start with uh, a question which might sound a bit stereotypical talking about Ireland, but it's very central to your book and is uh, drinking culture. Alcohol is uh, a, const a constant presence uh, in essentially many of the cases that you discuss. And so these, these cases that are, you know, uh, then basically brought to, uh, uh, to the coroners often involve the consumption of alcohol. And uh, I was just wondering if you can take it from here and tell us about, uh, you know, what does it mean alcohol consumption and what is the role of alcohol in the cases, um, you know, discussed and, you know, written down by uh, the coroner? Um, yeah, uh, Roberta, that's again a very astute observation on your part, and it is a stereotypical view of Irish people of the drunken Paddy and the drunken Bridget and this, that, and the other. And um, it's something that I found kind of difficult to grapple with myself as an Irish woman, um, and uh, but also, you know, constantly having to kind of combat this in in like the it, it very it's very much a kind of a um, a British view of Irish people, um, to my mind, and um, this idea that the, you know, um, and it's, it's, a, it's an Anglo-centric view, really, Anglo-American view, because it, the same kind of perceptions of Irish people was, uh, was promulgated in um, particularly, um, say, Harper's and Punch, these illustrated um, uh, weeklies and monthly magazines. And um, when in actual fact, like uh, if you look at the per capita consumption of alcohol in Ireland, it's not any higher than any other city um, of the Four Nations project. And uh, so it's it's a, an over, a, I think an, an overstatement um, of the alcohol consumption in Ireland. And again, Dermot Furter, Elizabeth Malcolm and others have covered this in their extensive work on temperance and alcohol consumption in Ireland. So I think it's deeply problematic, um, and and it, it, but it also is in the records. It's a specific question that is asked of certain people who are coming before the courts. Now there are some cases that quite categorically, you know, happen in a pub, like somebody died while drinking a pint, and uh, you know, or somebody died um, through violence in a pub, or you know, somebody died because of what we'd now call um, a sucker punch, a, a one punch fight where somebody was drunk and hit somebody and they hit their head off the ground and it's all terrible um, and everybody's very contrite and it's it's an unfortunate situation. Um, these are unquestionably, they involve alcohol consumption without question. But I found myself having to go further because in the um, witness statements, I, there were you know people talking about, oh, I only had one drink or I only had two drinks or, you know, and actually also it's about your perception of how much drink you've had if you've had engaged in a few drinks of an evening and you may forget the one or two others or, but I also found myself thinking around what was the proof of the alcohol they were consuming if they only had two drinks? And bearing in mind as well what I know about um, the level of, say, liquidity of cash in circulation and how they could pay for this, maybe they only did have one or two drinks. But were they drinking pochine, which is the equivalent of moonshine, you know, or were they drinking a glass of Guinness, uh, which was very obviously a very important beverage at the time? And um, but I, I wondered about the gravities of um, or the proof of the alcohol that they were drinking. 
and um, and I found kind of about twenty years later uh, cases coming before um, the courts in the nineteen twenties, as in the criminal courts of um, methylated spirits dealers. Um, you know, um, being brought before the criminal courts for 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 selling. Um, alcohol that has like unknown proof that's industrial strength alcohol basically um but the problem in in inner city particularly around the north side uh, of the city is that there are quite a number of what we would call she beans which are unlicensed premises um you know peddling alcohol and sometimes it's adulterated and sometimes it's not now that's only a small fraction of the cases but in Instances where, you know, it's a, a case of a child um, who died as a result of, say, burning or scalding in a household. Um, if the, 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 the household is stable, if it's a, you know, a married couple, the father is out working and the mother is looking after the children or whatever. And there's a perception of respectability there because it's, it's considered a, a strong household in some respects. Um, then there's no the level alcohol consumed is not not in question. But if it's a case of a single parent, either a single father or a single mother, now to a lesser extent, single fathers come into the equation. Um, but the question of alcohol consumption is asked in those cases. And I found that manifestly unfair, obviously, um, full of bias and kind of prejudicial um uh, thinking on the part of police, jurors, and everybody else involved in 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 the the criminal court inquiry. So I felt I had to push it a that little bit further, Roberto, and that's why I devote quite a bit of time in the book to it because I think it's something. There are myths that need to be dispelled, but there is the centrality of not just alcohol consumption, but the public house to Irish social life, because for men, it's a marker of of, of masculinity of respectability to be able to go to pub, to a pub and stand a round of drinks, which means to be able to, to buy a round of drinks for your friend. And this drinking in rounds is something that Dermot Furter in particular talks about in his work on, on, on the Irish Pioneers Association um, as being um, kind of a, a mark of respectability and masculinity, uh, but also um, in work on Irish labour law, um, the pub was where you got a job. So if you were a general labourer and you were working in the, the docks in the north side of the of the Liffey, um, you you went to the pub to meet the gaffer or the ganger and the person who who uh, arranged the the work, um, perhaps maybe going on a steamship or working on the docks for you know short periods of time. And in many respects as well, um, uh, Desmond Greer has found in his work um, on Irish labour law um, that um, not only was work organised in the pub, but men were paid in the pub. So if you weren't a drinker, there was certainly peer pressure to be a drinker because you would have to buy a round, you would have to buy the gaffer a drink for his favour and his consideration for the next job. So there's a saying in Irish, "fitafuta," uh, which is a, a lovely kind of uh, uh, it. It is what it sounds like. It's it's intertwined. It's it it. So drinking and drink culture and the pub is intertwined in the lives of men in particular at the beginning of the 20th century. So there's no escaping it. And of course, in the case of Guinness workers, part of their payment was in 
pints of Guinness. So um, they were allowed two pints of Guinness a day as part of their payment. And you were seen as a bit of a square if you didn't indulge. So, um, but some men actually did um, get what was called a scrip, where they didn't drink the two pints and they and they brought the money home. But of course, they were probably seen as, you know, under the thumb or, you know, a bit a bit square, you know, um, if they didn't partake. But I know you know what I mean, Roberto. <laughs> I see you smiling way there. No, that, that was uh, fascinating when I was reading the book, and I found out that actually workers were paid in, uh, you know, Guinness. I was I, I was very surprised, uh, but I guess it made sense in in, in a way. Like uh, you know, you're you're working there, and uh, again, because you're talking about this culture. Uh, where drinking is part of a social environment where obviously, you know, you, you're just also paid uh, in that kind of coin. And and you mentioned that the pub is very central. And I found the pub, uh, when reading the book, uh, central, a sort of a, a connection between the domestic environment and the work environment. And so I want to I wanna talk about now the, the domestic setting, which is when one where actually people die. It's not where uh, only people live. And there are a number of cases that you discuss where people have died at home. And so can you tell us what the uh, coroner's reports tell us about the domestic environment in Dublin? And perhaps you can also tell us uh, something about the question of uh, child neglect, which I found extremely troubling to, to an extent. And um, uh, how were people, mostly mothers, judge by both the court and the neighbours? Yeah, the the domestic uh, context uh, is uh, architecturally uh, for children, physically, it's a very dangerous space. And if you're living in a tenement setting uh, in a household that was uh, probably designed with one family in mind in uh, the 18th century, the late 18th century, um, you know, by the close of the 19th century with no upkeep, etc. A lot of these buildings are very decrepit. In fact, some collapse and there is devastating consequences and um, uh, later than, than my book deals with, but then not that much later, it's only in, uh, in 1913, but um, there's a, a case where a couple of tenement houses collapse on Church Street and, um, and quite a number of people die. But that's an extraordinary uh, context. Uh, but in the ordinary and in the everyday, um, there are several cases. And I, I understand what you mean about very troubling. And I think it's it, it, there's a content and a trigger warning here for everybody because um, the cases are very unsettling. And um, particularly when you consider the number of children who die as a result of burning and scalding in rooms that were never designed as cooking spaces. And like, you know, I found myself reading um, the, the, the coroner's inquest. Um, uh, my data set is of 611, I should, I should say that. And they center around the 1901 census. So a year before and a year after. And I do that because I was able to kind of use the 1901 census returns as an anchor as well. And also as part of those, uh, the, the, an instrument of, of, of biopower, um, uh, it's a way in which um, I could anchor these very, very poor families um, and, and examine their lives over a small period of time. And there was one case of a little girl um, who had been born to her mother prior to her, um, her, her, her current uh, relationship marriage um, by the time her daughter died. And um, uh, that child, even though she was four 
Katie, Katie McLaughlin was her name. And um, she was four in 1901. And or yeah, it was 1901 that she died. And um, there was no record of her, um, no civil registration of her birth. But neither was she accounted for in the 1901 census that had occurred a couple of months, be- couple of months before her death. So she is kind of a poor child who um, is, I think, perhaps a bit neglected. And um, unfortunately, um, she dies um, uh, as a result of a, of a of burning um, in, again, a room that was never designed to be a cooking space. Um, so needless to add, like cooking spaces were problematic for um, children, small children to be around. There were no fire guards. And it was something that Louis Byrne was quite exercised about. Um, and he he takes it up kind of throughout his career and he's trying to encourage landlords and the and the uh, co- the Dublin Corporation to you know make it part of the rules that you had to have fire guards in uh, rooms with children etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course it's not just children who die as a result of burning um like women um older women in particular um uh, I have a case of an older woman who's uh, whose dress caught fire and she was unable to um, get away from it and it's a terrible case of uh, her grandchild was in the room with her and um, the neighbors heard banging on the on the on their ceiling which was the child uh, inconsolable because basically his grandmother is alight in the room with him and um, he's terrified and uh, it's a it's an awful awful case but it makes you think about, and particularly writing this book during a cost of living crisis and a housing crisis, uh, not just in Dublin, in all Irish cities, um, and globally for that matter, of overcrowding. And particularly as we are, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic, um, the inability to to uh, cordon off uh, already very small spaces for social isolation. What do you do in a household where there's 10 people or 15 people um, and you have two rooms? And let's face it, in a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, migrant um, uh, households, that is the case, you know, particularly for young um, um, migrants. You know, they, they, they tend to heap up on top of each other. Uh, they don't really care because they're young. Um, but then throw a, a public health problem in there. And you have a you have difficulty and you have an issue. And in Dublin, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a slower burning endemic disease of tuberculosis and people really succumbed to that. And other respiratory illnesses were really um, prevalent in Dublin at the beginning of the 20th century. And of course, as well, you know, um, these poorly ventilated and of course, they weren't opening windows because you know, you're leaving out the heat if you open the window. Um, you see um, deaths that are quite seasonal as well in the colonial courts. So deaths by fire happen predominantly in kind of colder weather. And um, and again, you, you, you mentioned at the outset, Roberto, you know, the judgment of women. Um, I think that if a mother leaves a child in a room with a fire um, and... Um, Look, you can't watch children all the time. I think most parents or anybody who's looked after a small child, you turn your back for a second, anything could happen. Uh, there's an element of luck here. But in cases where mothers left children in rooms where there were fires lighting, um, they were more kind of uh, susceptible to a very critical gaze um, from the perspective of jurors. 
And sometimes it was very unsympathetic. And again, respectability indicators come into play here. If it was a single mother, um, they were judged more harshly. Um, if it was a mother who had any kind of reputation for having taken drink, um, again, judged more harshly. And there was one case where a father was asleep in another room, um, the case of Isabella Woodcock, and uh, he was a sorter in the GPO. He had like had been on a night shift. Mother went next door to go to the grocer's next door uh, to get some soap, I think it was. She was gone for like a minute or two. And when she came back, um, her child, um, her child was on fire. The child's clothing was on fire. And... Um, she had left her two small children alone in a room where there had been a fire lighting, but her husband was in the room next door. And when the police come um, later on that day uh, to take statements and whatnot, um, he makes an allegation against her of having been a drinker. And the and to be fair to the, the constable, the Dublin Metropolitan uh, Police Constable, um, who um, had was was attending to the case he investigated it further and he actually said look there's no evidence whatsoever that this woman was a drinker well it was such an easy thing to do to besmirch the reputation of that woman by making the allegation of being a drinker so it's not just you know kind of british and american views of the irish it's the irish uh you know um views of themselves as well this kind of falling into that stereotypical view and um and just kind of turning it against women in particular is is really uh i found that fascinating uh roberto um particularly in the records that i came across i want to move to the outdoor now we talked about alcohol which certainly may have exacerbated uh you know certain situations uh, that eventually led uh, uh, to the death of individuals uh, including children but i had the feeling that the real danger in dublin was actually represented by the street and its traffic Perhaps something that didn't change uh, ever since. Yeah, uh, Roberto. Again, as a as an urban historian, um, you 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 will appreciate this. I think a lot. I I, I look at nineteen hundred to nineteen o two in particular, and around that time, the last of the trams become electrified in Dublin, and because of the presence of of these electric trams um, crisscrossing the streets, it shoves other vehicular traffic into smaller streetscapes. And so you have these big, powerful horses, these draft horses, um, driving hedge cars or hackney cars down much smaller streets. And children in tenements use the space outside the front door as an extension of their households. And um, they're very they're very much in danger there and probably weren't attuned to... Um, I think per- perhaps with other ambient noise in the city, um, probably didn't hear shouts of warning to get out of the way or, you know, young children are probably oblivious to everything else except what they're playing with um, and um, probably didn't hear, you know, parents or guardians or older people or other children shouting at them to move out of the way. I think for tram drivers, there's quite a number of cases of... Um, tram drivers knocking people down um i have 38 cases on total of people are being knocked down and uh, for me I, I think when i was looking i was I, before i started really investigating this i was thinking why didn't they hear 
um, you know, a bell or the sound of oncoming hooves or, you know, a tram, surely you would have heard it. And then when you think about it a bit further, if there's other competing sound, you're not going to hear the sound of hooves. You're not going to hear the sounds of bells or or, or, or shouts, um, you know, because there's so many other competing sounds in a city. And I think that that's something that's probably lost to history is the soundscape of, of, of early 20th century Dublin. We don't know what it sound, sounded like. And um, I think that, you know, you know, when the talkies come about in the 1920s and 30s and there's actually, you know, sound captured in the city, um, you know, like I had no, I had no frame of reference. If you know what I mean, Roberto, I'm not sure if there's anything that exists for Jerusalem at the beginning of the 20th century, but you know, the history of sound is something I think that really deserves more attention from um, urban historians. Um, But it's, it's that cusp of modernity really, isn't it? Between, between, and of course the, the arrival of bicycles and motor cars as well. Um, if you look at the colonial court records kind of a few years later, it's it's motor cars that are, that are causing deaths as well, because I think there's a confusion around um, the rules of the road, um, around traffic speeds and, and pedestrians expect um, trams and cars to stop for them. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever found when you come to a new city, you're not used to the convention. Uh, do I walk or not? Or like, do I stop? Do I go? Um, and I think that there's an element of that going on as well. And I've quite a few cases where people are kind of copus mentis enough after they're injured and they say, well, I expected him to stop or, you know, I, and there's an uncertainty about the rules of the road. And um, um, unfortunately, when you're hit by a, a horse or a tram, you know, the longer term uh, prospects are not good. Um, so people die from internal um, hemorrhaging, particularly adults. Children are invariably, unfortunately, killed on the spot and um, they they die fairly soon afterwards. So they're not giving evidence. I didn't have any evidence of a child saying anything, but um, there's evidence of witnesses saying, oh, I heard the driver say, you know, move up, pull back, whatever, or shouting at the children to get out of the way. And, um, and of course, for middle class reformers, it's the nuisance of children playing football on the streets. Where else are they going to go? There's nowhere else for children to pay to play in Dublin City at the beginning of the 20th century until such a time that there are playgrounds constructed specifically for them. Um, so it's an unfriendly space for children. Um, but it's also there's a huge sense of community in Dublin City. And that was one of the things that I really came across in the records was that people looked after one another, no matter how poor they were. Um, the poor looked after the destitute and um, and strangers, um, in contrast with, say, uh, mothers in the home, where if a, a death occurred in a domestic context, mothers of, of a child, mothers were definitely under scrutiny uh, in terms of blame. But when deaths occurred outside the front door, everybody was responsible for those children around. So uh, there was a, a small let up on the pressure in terms of the blame that could be put on mothers. So, um, and I found that a little bit refreshing. So I also used the threshold as the front of the front door as a marker in my study because I felt it was important to distinguish between um, deaths inside and outside of the home. Let me move to your final chapter. Now, th- this is the one that I found the most disturbing in terms of the stories that are recollected. Uh, but I also want to say that, uh, particularly for the readers, that, uh, um, you know, your narrative... Uh, keeps the reader at one arm's length 
from sort of the violence that occur in the environment, but there's also a good deal of empathy. So it's kind of like uh, you can read it through from an academic perspective, but at the same time, you're not fully detached from the stories. And I found it very, very uh, important. Uh, now, you talk about the unnatural, suspicious, and violent deaths. And I'm interested in uh, the role of law, religion, traditions, particularly in order to understand uh, the other key term that permeates your, your, your work. And you just mentioned that, blame. Yeah, <clears throat> um, blame is obviously a very important, uh, it, it is an important concept when you're looking at any kind of court records. And I mean, it's the purpose of the adversarial courts to blame somebody or to, you know, uh, to punish somebody who is to blame for a particular crime or to exonerate them. And um, for the final chapter, I, I, you know, one of the reviewers said, you know, you need to put this first because you need to hook your reader. And these are the most interesting cases. And I was thinking, gosh, if I put that first, I'll terrify people and they'll run away from me. And um, I'm glad you agree, uh, Roberto, with that. Um, so I divided the cases basically into deaths of infants. Um, so cases of uh, suspected infanticide, um, cases of suicide and cases of manslaughter or um uh, manslaughter or homicide and um, there were some incredibly violent deaths in there and some cases that I had to kind of retrospectively kind of uh, recategorize say cases that were very clear cases of um, self-harm that were rendered into an open verdict to I think again coming back to one of your original observations, Roberto, uh, for more for the living than for the dead. Um, so to preserve the good name of a family, um, the jurors would return a verdict um, that a rider, I should say. So the, the verdict is medical, by the way. It's usually verbatim what the medical expert says the cause of death is. But in cases of self-harm or suicide, um, usually it says, you know, what instrument was used or how uh, the the death occurred whether it was by hanging whether it was by um uh, you know the various different methods employed uh, drowning was a was a, a favored one um so in all cases where a body was an adult body was found drowned um in um in Dublin and elsewhere um, similar cases and similar to cases in Australia other studies uh, uh, of Australia and New Zealand found that um Drowning was a, a favoured me- method uh, because not everybody swam back then either at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so uh, it was our way of, 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 of doing the deed. Um, and what the jurors would do, would they, they would add a, a rider saying, and we have no evidence to show. So that way um, there is an exoneration of the subject of the court so, or else they would use um, while temporarily insane, and again that comes back to and it, it comes back to the religiosity of, of it all, and and how um, suicide was uh, viewed uh, both in legal terms and in um, religious terms. Um, the Roman Catholic Church um, refused to uh, allow victims of suicide. Uh, to be buried on consecrated ground um, but usually that's canon law uh, but the interpretation of that by Irish priests would have been different and it gave priests that little bit of an out if a jury came back with and we have no evidence to show or 
while temporarily insane. Um, now, in other countries, uh, there would have been implications for insurance, health, life insurance policies, and this, that, and this, that, and the other. But uh, less so in Ireland, um, um, because, and particularly in this very poor data set, we're talking about very poor people here who don't have lives insured uh, invariably. And in fact, in any of the cases of infanticide or suspicious child deaths, one of the first questions that's asked is: Is the child insured? Because there's this idea which was, of course, popularised in the 1980s by Reagan of the welfare queen almost idea of, you know, they're on the make. They're not on the make. There might have been one out of, say, 500 cases of uh, insurance fraud. Um, So, like, and I did look to see if I could find um, uh, records of insurance companies, but unfortunately they're not extant. Um, so I, I have very little evidence uh, to support the, this claim that there is massive insurance fraud happening. It's not. It's simply not. You know, so one case is blown out of proportion in order to support this this uh, classist idea that the poor are mean to their children. They're absolutely not. You know, um, so um, there there is there are some cases of neglect and cruelty without question, but they're in the minority. Um, so. Um, I found this chapter very difficult to write. It took me a long time. Um, and once I'd written it, I sat with it for about a year. And um, because I felt I had to locate the various uh, types of death uh, in their legal instruments. So for infanticide, there's a set of legislation for that and uh, punishment or whatnot. Um, and under bastardy and infanticide laws. And then in terms of suicide, you have to deal with the legal legal instrument. Um, and of course, not every law that's passed in Westminster is uh, is, is brought into Ireland. Um, so um, so I found myself having to look into burial law, uh, law associated with forfeiture, and um, also looking into insurance and this, that and the other. And then for the uh, homicide cases or the manslaughter cases, um, those cases I found particularly depressing, to be honest with you, because um, so few cases, um, there's so few cases of murder, first of all. And um, so to me, again, coming back to this idea of biopower, the poor are afraid of the surveillance of the state and uh, also afraid to engage with um, um, the police or uh, the legal instruments um, that say middle class or upper class people might engage with, they're not going to call the police um, because they have to live in the areas that they're in. Uh, if there's a case of there was a case of a mother and daughter, um, I think you might remember that case, uh, Roberto. And what I think uh, to me, again, there's very little records to, to back this up here. Uh, because let's face it, local bully boys don't keep their memoirs. Um, but there is a degree of, I think, probably some maybe gang mentality going on here, bully boy tactics, the strong man of a community, etc., etc. Prob- probably a bit of extortion and protectionism going on as well. Uh, but there's no way of getting at that history. Um, and how we view it is through records of the court. And that's only a small, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of criminality. So um, so it was difficult to use the records to, to kind of push them as far as I could to uh, get a sense of how blame is allocated. And what I found was, particularly in the coroner's court, women were more likely to be blamed than men. Um, men are 
you know, particularly if they have full time jobs or they see they're see they're perceived as good men in the community, seeing them literally get away with murder in these records, and uh, both the murder of children and women. And, you know, aren't they mighty men all the same? And, you know, they, they, they end up getting like three or four months because judges see them coming before the courts and they, they're like, OK, if I leave this man in prison for a year or two, that's taking the breadwinner out of circulation and I'm going to plunge that family into poverty. And, um, and there, there is a lot of compassion in the courts as well. And you have to remember around this time, there is an increase, uh, increasingly nationalist kind of um, outlook in Irish society, particularly in Dublin. And um, and there's a rising Catholic middle class as well. So, yeah, there's a heady mix of kind of religion and uh, uh, there's a, a localization of the interpretation of laws that are passed in Westminster and how they apply to Dublin is a, a matter of discretion. First of all, at the hands of the police and then afterwards at the hands of the courts. So it's... Um, it's not a linear thing. And, uh, you know, I, I found that in some of those really awful cases, Roberto, that the outcome was a fine of 20 shillings for somebody who had starved a child to death. Really? Are you kidding me? And, you know, uh, a man being sentenced to uh, less than 12 months um, after he had like, you know, it was a case of manslaughter, but he killed his child, you know, and uh, who had stood between a young boy who had stood between uh, an abusive man and his wife and um and tr- this young boy was trying to protect his mother and uh, he was killed at the hands of his own father it was he was drunk it was accidental it was all of those things but he ended up serving just a couple of months because the census returns show us he was out within 3 months you know so it's it's um a little bit of plus a change as well, because when we look at violence against women in um, in society right now, um, I, I, I again see there's very little change. Um, there's a lot of uh, crime, criminality, violence, domestic violence that remains um, underreported or um, doesn't get to the courts uh, because of fear, fear of, you know, making matters worse. And unfortunately, in the cases of domestic violence, women women die at the hands of abusive men. Now, as we reach the end of the interview, I just have a, one question, but it's divided in two. So I was wondering how this book has been received since it's been published, and maybe you think will be received in the future, in Ireland in particular, given uh, it paints a rather green picture uh, one that, uh, and you, you talk about this in the book, that the post-independent um, independence governments were not really eager to discuss. And the other side of the question is, is perhaps we can really end uh, uh, discussing what is the legacy of death uh, that was reported by Dr. Byrne in Irish history and society. They're excellent questions, Roberto. I mean, the first thing I would say is that one of the things I found with regards to the Dublin City Coroner's Court, it, it had a seamless blending with the city, the cadence of city life. And that's why um, it it hasn't formed part of Irish historiography until until now, really. Um, very few historians have looked at the coroner's records. And um, 
in terms of how this book would be, it has been seen. It's just been reviewed um, in the Irish Times and um, uh, kind of f- favorably so by uh, by uh, Dr. Chris Cusack, which is a very generous of him. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure. That's not for me to answer, really, Roberto. Um, but um, it certainly it, it it shines a light of, on on a very grim Irish history that uh, post independence Ireland would definitely uh, issue because uh, it's not the type of Ireland that the Irish Free State would have promulgated as, you know, uh, it looked to the west of Ireland. Indeed, that's where I began as a historian, looking at, uh, um, uh, you know, the west of Ireland and poverty and development in, um, uh, under the Congested Districts Board from 1891 to 1923, around the same time frame, I suppose, really kind of this era of nation building and um I think that uh, Dublin inner city, because of its association with um, being the site of British administration in Ireland, it had a high number of uh, enlistments uh, to uh, British Crown forces during World War One. Um, it's not where the Irish Free State government looks to as uh, the epitome of, uh, you know, Irishness. It looks to the west of Ireland, that Synodosh kind of Irish comely maidens at the crossroads, uh, you know, Irish language, uh, little whitewashed uh, thatched cottage uh, and this, uh, you know, sturdy children and uh, that this idea of uh, a healthy, happy, self-sufficient rural household. It's not looking to the tenements, um, which is, I think, begins to be issued and it's something that I, I do deal with in the book because um it's not where Gaelic Irishness uh in terms of the revival is is located. And it's it's quite unfair because it's something that's really celebrated in 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 the Ireland and in the Dublin of Sean O'Casey, which is a, a working class uh urban Irish identity that is no less Irish than, say, Nagel Gori from the west of Ireland. And I'm an Irish speaker from the west of Ireland, but it's no less Irish than I am, you know. Um, so this this Dublin city identity is, I think, ignored for quite some time. And even so much like, you know, the collection of folklore in the 1920s and 30s by um, the now National Folklore Archive, and which is held at UCD. But the Irish folklore collection initially just collected folklore in rural Irish areas and it ignored, you know, areas of Northern Ireland as well. Is that less Irish? Um, is Belfast less Irish than than Dublin or Kerry? I, I think not. Um, you know, so this this idea of Irishness, it's a very complicated issue, as you well know, Roberto. Uh, but um, certainly uh, the history that I uncover would not be very popular, popular with, uh, say, the Devilarian concept of what our Ireland should be and what families should look like and um and and of course, uh, things change utterly in the twenties and thirties in Ireland, and and the types of people coming before the coroner's court would not have been, you know, uh, the Kathleen Hulahans or you know the celebrated uh, of um, of the idea of the perfect Irish woman and the perfect Irish man, you know um, that and and of course these identities change like the that the drunken Paddy the drunken Biddy um, these ideas change as well 
from 1900 onwards and indeed from the um the world fair in chicago um you know the, there's this this kind of reinvention of what uh, the irish colleen is um, and that happens at the close of the 19th century but she's rural and she's uh she's she's pure and she's a particular type of irishness so I think I, I don't think Ireland's unique in that way. And um, there's always this idea of Irish exceptionalism, which really bothers me as well. Um, but um, I think that lots of nations try to articulate a particular identity at the beginning of the 20th century. Sometimes it's prom- it, it, it's articulated to the body of women. And Ireland had al- has always been um, feminized. Um, it's Bamba, it's uh, Kathleen Houlihan, it's uh, it's it's a it's a female figure, whereas John Bull is brutish and male and British and whatnot. Um, you know, so um, this articulation of Irish identity through mediated to the body of women is is a really interesting one. And Mother Russia, Mother India, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting concept and something that hopefully sometime in my career I'll deal with more. Um but you're absolutely right Roberto. Um this is not the type of Irishness that would have been very popular with John Charles McQu- with, with uh John Charles McQuaid or De Valera in the 40s and 50s. Definitely not. This was Professor Kira Bernack author of Ordinary Lives, Death and Social Class, Dublin City Coroner's Court, 1876-1902, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Kira, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto.